Father, it's, it's quite a, a striking verse that we sang. Uh, how is it that God, our maker, could die? Uh, it's only because of how he took upon himself human nature, becoming a man, to lay down that human life in the place of our sins. It is only because Jesus, our Savior, is God and man. It is only in that sense that our God could die on our behalf. And we thank you that that is, is what you have done. Uh, that, Lord Jesus, you who are God the Son, you became a man, and you lived a perfect life in our place, and then you went to the cross where you laid down your perfect life on behalf of sinners uh, so that the wrath of God would be quenched in your body on the tree. And then you rose from the dead showing that, that what you did was enough to save forever all who would draw near to God through you. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. Help us uh, to follow you um, and to every day take to heart what you accomplished for us. Help us to remember we are not our own, that we were purchased with a price. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, may your spirit help us to understand what we read. May you convict us where we need convicting. May you comfort us where we need comforting. And may your spirit wield your word in our hearts uh, because the word of the word of man uh, cannot accomplish anything. It's only your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, we're continuing to work our way through Galatians, so you can open up to the first chapter, Galatians 1. And we're looking at verses 6 through 10 this morning. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. Paul writes this, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ." Nobody wants to get duped. Nobody likes having the wool pulled over their eyes. I was thinking back to when I was quite a bit younger. Growing up, I wasn't the smartest kid, so it was pretty easy to, to string me along, to take me for a ride, uh, to make me believe something was real when it wasn't. I remember when I was camping with my family. I think we were in the old forge area in the Adirondacks. And we were working our way through the shops, just looking for souvenirs. And there was something on the wall, a little package in one of the shops we were in that caught my eye. It was an official mosquito trap. It looked like, uh, you know, one of those bear traps that are spring-loaded. You take the jaws and you put it down. And when the animal steps on the, the trip pan in the center, you know, the jaws spring up and, and grab the animal by the leg. Well, this mosquito trap was this, just that kind of trap, just miniature. And I googled it this morning to see if I could 
find one again, and they're still out there. On the package, it reads, Official Mosquito Trap. Catch them alive. For the novice trapper, trap your own mosquito fur and make a fur coat. Obviously, that's meant to be a joke, right? But to my young eyes, this was real. How cool was that? I'd never heard of that before, that you could catch a mosquito in that fashion. So I, I bought it excitedly, and I brought it back to our campsite, and I must have opened it up and, and set it and put it on the little fold-out table in our camper, just waiting for some unsuspecting mosquito to fly by and, and get snagged. Well, my dad and my uncle decided to prank me because I left the camper, and when I came back, my dad and uncle are sitting there, and they, you know, they excitedly point to the, the trap, and, and I look, and there's a mosquito caught in the jaws of this trap. And I, I'm amazed it worked. I couldn't believe it. But then, you know, my dad and uncle start laughing, and it dawned on me how stupid I had been. And I was, I was really upset. I was so angry. I was angry at them for tricking me. I was angry at myself for being so foolish as to fall for something like that. Well, we've seen the past couple weeks that the Galatians were being duped. Paul had come to them preaching the gospel that Jesus, the Son of God, had died on the cross for the sins of all who would put their trust in him. And he had risen from the dead. And the Galatians, when Paul came, they were under the wrath of God. They were headed for destruction because of their sins. And so Paul brought this good news to them and told them that if they believed upon the Lord Jesus, they would be saved. And there was no good work that they could do. It was all the work that Jesus had already done. And if they put their faith in him, they would be forgiven. They would receive eternal life. They just needed to trust in Jesus. And they did. They were forgiven. They had received the Holy Spirit. But somehow, after Paul left, false teachers came in. And these false teachers were impressive to these newborn Galatian believers. And we often call these false teachers Judaizers. They were uh, Jewish professing believers who were teaching that Gentiles needed to live like Jews in order to get saved. Hence, Judaizer. They were making you like a Jew so that you could be saved. They were saying that, yeah, you needed to believe in Jesus, but you also needed to be circumcised. And you needed to observe all the law of Moses in order to truly receive salvation. So these Judaizers, they made good works a requirement for justification. According to the Judaizers, in order to be declared righteous by God, they said that these Galatians needed to add their own merit to the merits of Christ before God would accept them. And the Galatians, they were being duped. They were beginning to fall for this counterfeit gospel. And in this letter that we're working our way through, Paul is rushing to rescue the Galatians from this deception. And it's important for us to consider this letter because are there still false teachers today? Yes, they might not have the name Judaizer, but they are still out there. There are those who would seek to get us to trade the genuine gospel for a counterfeit gospel. 
And not only do we need to be on guard against believing a counterfeit gospel, but we also need to be on guard against preaching a counterfeit gospel. Because there's a temptation to modify the message to make it more palatable to those we are bringing that message to. So there's two things we need to guard against. We need to guard against believing a false gospel, and we need to guard against preaching a false gospel. And as we work through uh, these uh, several verses, we're going to find three instructions for us, three applications for us as believers today. The first we'll see in verses 6 through 7, and that is don't trade the genuine for the counterfeit. Don't trade the genuine gospel for the counterfeit gospel. We see that in verses 6 through 7. Before I read those two verses, I want you to notice that normally when Paul writes a letter, in his greeting, he invariably includes either a blessing or a thanksgiving for those he's writing to. Well, he doesn't do that here, does he? No, he just, he jumps right to the point, right? And that seems significant. Paul is writing to a group of people who are right on the edge of abandoning the gospel. And we know that apart from the gospel of Christ, there is no salvation. So how can Paul give thanks for the Galatians' faith when their faith is the very thing they are on the edge of throwing away? Of course, he's not going to give thanksgiving at this point in time. So as Paul's writing, he's not filled with thanksgiving. He's not filled with joy Uh, about these believers. Instead, he's filled with deep concern for them. And we hear that concern in verse 6. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul says, I'm amazed or I marvel. He is astonished. He is greatly disturbed. And what is disturbing to Paul is that these believers are so quickly deserting the God who called them to salvation in Christ. Now, I had mentioned before that I believe this letter was written very shortly after Paul's first missionary journey, between the first and second missionary journeys. And there's, there's different thoughts on that, but that's, that's what I subscribe to. And if that is true... That means that not much time at all has elapsed between the time when Paul brought them the gospel and they believed to the time when false teachers came in and they're starting to be deceived. It happened very quickly. And part of what makes this so disturbing is how they had received the gospel that Paul had given them. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. They had heard the gospel clearly explained clearly proclaimed. There wasn't any kind of grayness, you know, lack of understanding. No, it was clearly presented to them. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Not only that, but they had received the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Not only that, but they had been willing to suffer 
for that newfound faith that they had. Verse 4, Paul asks, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Plus, they had been witness to the working of undeniable miracles in their midst, which gave testimony to the truth of the gospel that they had heard. Verse 5, he says, So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and work miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then jump over to to chapter 4. Part of what makes their desertion or their process of deserting so disturbing is they had sincerely loved Paul. Chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. The fact that all that happened, conjoined with what is now taking place when they're considering abandoning the one true gospel, that is, that is disturbing. But what disturbs Paul the most is not that they're deserting in the light of all that, What disturbs Paul the most is that they are in the process of turning away from the God who called them. And he called them by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The God of the universe called them. It wasn't just Paul calling them. It was God through him calling them. God was the one who drew them to faith in Christ. Now, who were the Galatians that God would take notice of them? They were nobody. Just as each one of us is nobody when God takes notice of us. It is the grace of God that the Almighty would look down and notice me and apply what Christ did to my life. The greatest being in all the universe had given to them forgiveness and eternal life. And he had given it for free. For free. Drawing them through the grace of Jesus. But now after they have already entered into the enjoyment of that gift, they are contemplating trading that most significant of gifts for something else, a different gospel, a different set of good news. So can you see why Paul is so astonished? Can you see why he's writing with such urgency? These Galatians are like a suicidal man standing on the edge of an 80-story building about to step off. And Paul is the officer trying to talk him down. These Galatians, they haven't stepped off the edge yet. They have not. And we know from other scriptures that no true believer ever does step off the edge, right? But that doesn't mean we don't exhort and we don't call back. God uses means to accomplish our perseverance. But they are right there. They are right on the edge. And Paul is is calling them back. And God is using Paul to preserve their faith. But Paul writes knowing that these believers are deceived. They're beginning to think that what the false teachers have taught them is truly the gospel. But Paul here in verse 6 calls it what kind of gospel? 
a different gospel. Now, does he mean that there really is more than one saving gospel and one saving gospel is, might be a little different, a little better than the, another? No, he clarifies, doesn't he? In verse 7, he clarifies. He says, about this different gospel, he says, which is really not another. It's really not another gospel. It's really not another set of good news. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The Galatians, they're being tricked by some who are disturbing them. That Greek word for disturbing, it means to shake something up or to stir it up. And in this context, it refers to the inner turmoil and confusion that has been inflicted upon these believers by the Judaizers. These false teachers have muddied the clear gospel waters that Paul had brought the Galatians to. And that's what false teachers do. They plant doubts. They try to make what is clear seem unclear. They get you all topsy-turvy so that then they can bring in their false teaching. And that word for disturbing, it's the very same word used in Acts chapter 15, verse 24. Let's go back to Acts 15. This is the chapter about the Jerusalem council. Uh, and But before we look at verse 24, let's back up to verses 1 to 2. Acts 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. This is what they taught. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. That's the same guys, the Judaizers. So they were going all over the place, weren't they? Not just Galatia. They also came to Antioch. And later we find they were also going around uh, the, the areas of Cer uh, Cilicia. And there was another place he mentioned, uh, Syriac, I think, or Syria. So they're from Judea, right? That's where they're from. So we get a little bit of understanding about these guys, and later on we'll see that they were associated with the Jerusalem church. That's what made these guys so convincing. These Judaizers were Jews who professed to believe in Jesus, and they had some association with the Jerusalem church, which was kind of like the mother church. It was the, the church from which the gospel had spread, from which all these other churches had popped up and came into being. So the, the church in Antioch, they send Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem church so that they can hash this out, get things cleared up. And they do get it cleared up. The apostles stand firm on the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they decide we got to write a letter to these other churches that these false teachers have disturbed. And we find that in verse 22. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church, the church in Jerusalem there, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, 
Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. And this is what the letter said. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Now here's verse 24. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction. So these guys, they just went on their own. To whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you. Same word as we saw in Galatians 1. They have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind about the gospel, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the cruelty of false teaching. They come, and you're, you're standing firm on the, the solid foundation of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and they come and they make you think that's not a, a solid foundation. And they disturb you and make you feel like you don't know if you're coming or going. It's a cruel thing to do. Back in Galatians 1, before we move off of verse 7, Notice how Paul characterizes these false teachers. He says that they want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is something they want to do, which means, or seems to indicate that their deception is intentional. It's intentional. These false teachers know what they're doing, though they might pretend that they're sincere. Why would they want to do that? Why would they want to distort the gospel of grace? Well, we saw it in chapter 6 during our overview. Remember chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 12? Paul says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they act like they're looking out for the Galatians' best interests, but really all they're looking out for is themselves, number one, right? So there were false teachers then, and there are still false teachers today who disturb genuine believers, people who act like they're looking out for you, but really they're looking out for themselves. Maybe you can pad their bank account. Who knows? They're looking out for themselves. We need to be on guard against such people. When I was uh, living out in California, I was part of a local outreach ministry, and we would uh, go door-to-door -door throughout the community surrounding our church, just sharing the gospel with people. And one day, a man with a wonderful Scottish accent, and maybe that's how he duped me. I love a, Scot a good Scottish accent. But this little man with a, a Scottish accent showed up, and he wanted to go out with us, evangelizing. And I don't recall that he ever said he was sent by anyone. He just seemed to be wandering from here to there, which that, that's a red flag. But he seemed like he was a genuine believer. So, yeah, we said, yeah, come along with us. And I got to know him a little bit. He was, he was very friendly. But one day I was sitting in church on a Sunday during, during service, and in the middle of service, while our pastor was speaking, I see my little... Scottish friend start walking up the stairs 
onto the podium while my pastor is speaking. And he just begins shouting, calling our pastor a false teacher. And I'm sitting there in disbelief, like, I know this guy. And I just, I, I see what he's doing, I hear what he's saying, and I just, I look to the ground, and I'm just shaking my head. Because I, I felt used by this man. I, I felt incredibly disturbed. So these, these sorts of people are out there. We need to cling tightly to the gospel. And we need to help one another cling tightly to the gospel. And that's what Paul's doing here in this letter. He's helping the Galatians cling tightly to the gospel. Because there are people out there who want to distort it for their own ends. So don't trade the genuine for the counterfeit. Secondly, in verses 8 to 9, we're going to see that you don't trust the glitter over the carrot. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the vegetable. Don't trust the glitter over the carrot. As you know, when when you're buying gold jewelry, it's something I've only done once in my life for my wife, but when you're buying gold jewelry, the purity of the gold that you're buying is measured in carrots, right? If something is one carat gold, that means the gold's not very pure. It's only one twenty-fourth gold, okay? Not, not a lot of gold there. If something is 12 carat gold, that means it's 12 twenty-fourths gold. That means half of it is pure gold. If something is 24 carat gold, it is 24 twenty-fourths gold, or 100% pure gold. But whether it's one carat or 24, it all glitters, right? It all glitters. But just because something glitters and looks gold doesn't mean it's actually pure gold, right? Well, the Galatians, they have gotten enticed by these false teachers. Apparently because the resume of these false teachers glittered, but their gospel was not pure. And, and Paul, as we work through these next couple of verses, we're going to see that though he is shocked at the Galatians uh, being tempted to desert the true gospel, it is the false teachers that he is most severe with, that he's righteously indignant with. He reserves his strongest language for them. And he tells the Galatians in verses 8 and 9 what is going to happen to these false teachers who are proclaiming a false gospel. Look at verse 8. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul's very clear here, right? He says it twice. He says almost the same thing twice over. He's very clear that anyone who perverts the gospel of Christ, anyone who tampers with the good news of Jesus, is cursed. The word for cursed is the Greek word anathema. To be cursed or to be anathematized is to be subjected to the curse of God. It's to be devoted to destruction is to be placed underneath his wrath. And that's an Old Testament concept. Uh, Turn back to Deuteronomy 20. The law of God commanded, as, as the Israelites were getting ready to go into the promised land, 
the law of God commanded that the evil people of the land be put under the ban or devoted to destruction. Deuteronomy 20. Verse 17. But you shall utterly destroy, or you shall put under the ban. And in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, that word for, uh, for or that, that phrase for put under the ban, or devote to destruction, or utterly destroy, it's translated with the Greek word anathema, and the Greek verb anathematizo. He goes on, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. In the New Testament, this, this word anathema, it's used by Paul in reference to eternal destruction. We won't turn there, but if you want to write it down, Romans 9, verse 3. Remember, Paul said that he could wish himself cursed if it would result in the salvation of his unbelieving Jewish kinsmen. He's talking about eternal destruction there. He loves his, his, brothers, or his, his kinsmen so much he'd be willing to go to hell for them if they could be saved. Another one is 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22 where Paul says uh, that all who do not love the Lord Jesus will be accursed. And it's the same idea here. Paul is saying that if anyone brings to the Galatians a gospel that is different from what they had heard and received from him, that person is headed for hell. Now, I want to pause here because I recognize there may be someone here with an oversensitive conscience and you're thinking back to that time when you tried to share the gospel with someone, but you messed it up. You didn't word something correctly, or you momentarily got scared, and you kind of pulled back from being as straightforward as you should have been, and it resulted in your message kind of going off track. And you read verses 8 and 9, and you're thinking, oh man, I, I didn't preach the, I, I, I preached a different gospel that time. Does that mean I'm cursed now? Well, I, I want to, to let you know that you are not the one this, this warning is being directed against. James writes in his letter, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And we'll see later in chapter 2 that what famous person kind of stumbles in his communicating the gospel with his life. Peter, right? Peter stumbled in that sort of way, and yet he was forgiven, and he went on to have a faithful ministry. So this, this condemnation in verses 8 to 9, it's not directed to, to the, the, the believer who stumbles in his gospel presentation. No, this, this condemnation is directed toward those who knowingly willfully, determinedly, and unrepentantly change the gospel. That is who this condemnation is directed against. Now, this seems like strong language, doesn't it, in verses 8 to 9? And it is. 
It is. But is Paul being just a little nasty, mean man here? No, he's not. He's not saying you're accursed if you preach a different gospel because he has some kind of personal feud with these false teachers. How do you know that? Because he includes who under this curse? Himself, right? He says, even if I come back and I preach a different gospel, I'm cursed if I do that. So this isn't some kind of personal beef. No, the gospel is at stake. And he also says that even if who comes from heaven? An angel. Even if an angel brings a false gospel, that angel will be subjected to the eternal wrath of God. Now, why does he, bring, why does he go that far in his language here? Well, I think Paul is making it clear to these Galatians that the truth of the gospel is not dependent on the resume of the preacher. Remember what Paul said uh, later in this letter when he recalled how the believers uh, received him the first time? Chapter 4, verses 12 to 15. They received him as an angel of God, right? But how did he come to them? He came to them because of a bodily illness, right? So when he came, there wasn't anything about him that was awe-inspiring. No, he came in weakness, preaching the gospel. And yet they received him like an angel of God, like Jesus himself. Which implies that what were they enamored by when Paul came? The message, right? They were enamored by the gospel that he came. But now that Paul left, some false teachers came in and they are falling for it, which hints that what are they being enamored by now? The resume of, of the false teachers. And as we saw in the book of Acts, what was the resume of these guys? Well, they're Jews. They're from Jerusalem. They're associated with that original church where the 12 apostles and James are ministering. Surely they know the gospel. So, you know, the Galatians look at these guys and they're probably thinking, boy, these guys, they rubbed shoulders with the original apostles. Paul, he wasn't made an apostle till later. And according to these false teachers, he's not even a big A apostle. But these guys, they came from Jerusalem, where Peter is, and James, and John, and all the other guys. Well, to help these Galatians stop being enamored with the resume of men, to get these Galatians to stop looking at the glitter and to start checking the carat value, Paul imagines someone even with greater credentials coming to the Galatians, an angel from heaven. Who would know the gospel better than an angel who has access to the very throne of the one who authored the gospel? And Paul says that even if someone like that comes preaching a different gospel, that angel is cursed. In other words, the resume has nothing to do with whether or not what they're saying is true. These Galatians needed to evaluate what they were hearing by the standard of the gospel by which they had been saved, not by what the resume is. Who's a great example of this? The Bereans, right? In Acts 17, Paul came preaching the gospel to them, and they were described as being more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, but what were they doing? They were examining the scriptures daily to see whether or not what Paul was saying was true. 
When, when someone tells me their Christian testimony of how they came to faith in Christ, it always concerns me when that person seems to be resting their faith not on the message that was brought to them, but on the appearance of the one who brought it to them. I've heard uh, the type of testimonies where the person says that Jesus himself or maybe an angelic being appeared to him or her in a vision or a dream and presented the gospel to them. And in listening to them, they seem to be believing because of the appearance or the, the resume of the one who brought the message, not so much because of the content of what was said to them. My Scottish friend I told you about, he had a testimony like that. Now, if, if your testimony is one like that, I'm not going to, I cannot deny that you had that experience. But I will say to you that you need to be very careful to check the gospel message you heard from whoever it was that gave you against what the Word of God actually says. You need to be careful because there's no way for you to know whether or not what you saw was really the Lord himself or really a, a holy angel and not Satan and not his demons. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, just a couple pages earlier. 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11, starting in verse 1. This problem in Galatia wasn't a new problem. Paul was always having to combat uh, the influence of false teachers, and it was the same with Corinth. Second Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul writes, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now listen to what he says in verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You bear this beautifully. He's sarcastic there at the end. He's saying, you're, you're, you're bearing that beautifully. You're acting like that's no big deal. Verse 5, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. These guys who had come to Corinth kind of set themselves up as apostles. They were saying they had quite the resume. And, and Paul is saying, I'm not inferior to these guys, even though their resume sounds mighty good. Verse 6, but even if I'm unskilled in speech, even though I can't talk like those guys talk, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we made this evident to you in all things. Verse 7, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you, so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Part of what made these false apostles look so good was because they were charging for their message. You get what you pay for, right? I mean, these guys have to be better. They have to be more professional since we're, ha we're having to pay these guys. Verse 8, again, Paul's being sarcastic. He says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. 
And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Verse 12. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Now listen how he describes these false teachers. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So we learn there, Satan or his demons, they can come to you looking like Jesus or looking like an angel of light. And you don't want to gamble your eternal destiny on the appearance of the one who came to you, do you? The only way you can know if the gospel you believed is the one true saving gospel is if you go to the word of God and you find it that it matches with what the word of God says. Personal experience is an extremely shaky thing to rest your eternal soul on. You can only rest it on the word of God. So don't trust the glitter over the carrot. Third, and I probably... Tried a little too hard to get my alliteration lined up on this part. But verse 10, don't try for the guy rather than for Christ. You know, don't work for men rather than for the Lord. And this, this gets to how we need to guard against preaching a false gospel. All right? Verse 10, last verse of this passage. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, from what Paul says here, we get another little inkling into how these false teachers were misrepresenting Paul. They might have been suggesting that, that Paul got a little loosey-goosey with the gospel because he was trying to win over the Galatians. That to, to not offend them and to try to win them, he kind of watered it down a little bit. He kind of left out that circumcision part so that they would be more willing to believe. That's what they seem to be suggesting about Paul. But what did Paul just do in verses 8 to 9? He just placed himself under a curse if he so much as tampers with the gospel of the Lord. In light of what he has just said, he, he presents the, the question to the Galatians. He's, he's wanting them to consider for themselves. Listen, I just put myself under a curse if I mess with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you really think that I'm trying to please man instead of God? Obviously, no, right? He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant. I would not be a doulos. I would not be a slave of Christ. And this is almost like another way of saying what he just said in verses 8 to 9. Remember what he said in verses 8 to 9? If I preach a different gospel, right? If I preach a different gospel, 
Now, why would someone preach a different gospel? We have just seen that out of a desire to please men, I would preach a different gospel. Out of a desire to satisfy men so they don't persecute me, I would preach a different gospel. So you see what Paul said in verses 8 to 9, if, if I preach a different gospel, that's parallel with the thought in verse 10, if, if I'm trying to please men. Now, back to 8 and 9, if I preach a different gospel, I am what? I am accursed. Here in verse 10, if I seek to please men, I am not a slave of Christ. To not be a slave of Christ is to be cursed. Because you're either a slave of Christ or a slave of what? Of sin. Paul in Romans 6, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Christ carries his slaves to heaven. Sin drags its slaves to hell. Now, which one was Paul? Was he a slave of men, a slave of sin, or was he a slave of Christ? Well, what was his whole Christian life defined by? Suffering, right? Was he really trying to avoid persecution? If he was, he was doing a lousy job of it, wasn't he? You just read about that in, in 2 Corinthians 11. Remember that laundry list of sufferings that he went through? Was he going through all of that to, to please men? No, he was going through all of that to please his master, the Lord Jesus. You see, a Christian is not only a son or daughter of God, a brother or sister of Christ. A Christian is not only a friend of God and a friend of Christ, but a Christian is also a, a what of God? Slave of God, a slave of Christ. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians 5. Given that we're slaves of the Lord, if we're trusting in him, our Lord will hold us accountable for our service to him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, verse 9, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we must not, as believers, be men-pleasers. We must be Christ-pleasers, Christ especially when it comes to the gospel we're proclaiming. You see, if I, if I come to someone and share the gospel with them, and they, and they then see that everything I do is designed to impress men or to please men, do you think they can trust the gospel that I presented to them? No, they cannot, because I might have just been saying it the way I said it to try to win their favor, you know? If we are seeking to please Christ, though, we will be found to be faithful messengers. And when I preach the gospel and someone goes and checks, checks what I said, if I'm really trying to seek to please Jesus, they're going to find that what I said matched up with what the Bible said. All right, the last passage I'll have you go to is John 7. And we'll close with this. John 7, 
Here we see our Lord as our, our great example, as one who sought to please God rather than men. John 7 and verse 16. says, so Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. And, and he gives a little principle here in verse 18 about, about knowing whether or not a messenger is trustworthy. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself, like the Judaizers were doing, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. That's what we need to do as believers. We need to seek the glory of the one who's sending us. And if we do that, we won't mess around with the gospel. We'll proclaim it faithfully. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do ask for your help. Make us discerning, Lord. Uh, Make us full of love, full of love for you, full of love for our neighbor, that we would deny ourselves enough to give the gospel in a straightforward way, even though it might be um, hard for the other person to hear. Lord, make us loving enough to be willing to uh, to risk being rejected for the sake of giving them the the soul-saving message of the gospel. Lord, uh, help us to keep believing the one true gospel. Help us to keep proclaiming the one true gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.